Welcome to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast. This series explores the letters to the churches in Revelation and how they speak to us today. Let's jump right into today's teaching. Harry and I have been privileged to do a little bit of traveling um, in our world. Some of you, I'm sure, have traveled a lot more than we have. But you know that we live in a lovely part of the world. We really do, other than Scotland. We love showing visitors around Victoria. A couple of weeks ago, we had company from Ontario, a relative of Harriet's, and he'd never been on, he'd been in Vancouver for conference, and he came over for a few days, and never been on the ferry or on the island or in Victoria. We just loved showing him around, places like Busher Gardens and downtown, the breakwater, all that kind of thing. As Phil said, we started a series on the letters to the seven churches, and each city there is important in his background. And so if you were a resident of Smyrna, you would also enjoy showing visitors around your city. It had a well-known harbor, a famous stadium. It was claimed to have the largest public amphitheater in Asia Minor, a large and famous library. And remember those are the days that each book had to be handwritten. So when you had a large library, somebody did a lot of work. It was also said to be the the birthplace of Homer, the Greek poet, and who had um, written the Iliad. If you're 25 years or younger, you might assume that Smyrna was the birthplace of this person. (laughs) We're not talking about Homer Simpson. We're talking about Homer, the poet. In times of war, Smyrna had always sided with Rome very strategic decision. And it had been rewarded for maintaining its loyalty. But if you were a Christian in Smyrna, Smyrna was not a lovely city at all. In fact, it was a very dangerous place to be a Christian. The reason was that Smyrna was the center for Caesar worship. And the emperor was the the epitome of what all of Rome was about. And towards the end of the first century, um, emperor worship had become compulsory. And so each year, each citizen in Smyrna was required to sign an oath of loyalty to Caesar. And then you got a certificate, and I guess you could frame it and put it up in the garage or whatever you did. It read, we, the representatives of the emperor, have seen you sacrificing. And then you went on your way. Now, we must understand, it had nothing, nothing to do with religious loyalty or your spiritual commitment. The Roman pantheon, the temple, allowed you to believe in all kinds of gods. This was a test of political loyalty. The Roman emperors really had become paranoid about political allegiance to Caesar. After you'd gone through this little ceremony, you could go on your way and worship any way you wanted. Didn't matter to them. So use your imagination with me. The line slowly moves towards the table. And one by one, people make their offering. They burn the incense. They get their little certificate. And then off they go. One older man stands quietly in line. And as he approaches the table, they ask him, Citizen of Smyrna, burn the incense. And he just shakes his head. 
says no. The magistrate gets flustered and then starts to get angry. He asks him again, this time his voice getting firmer. Citizen of Smyrna, burn the incense. The man once again says, no. Just off to the edge of the square where all this is happening, a Roman centurion senses that something is going on. He takes a few steps and starts to move closer. The magistrate doesn't want any fuss because that makes him look bad. He lowers his voice and almost whispers, please burn the incense. I know who you are. It doesn't matter what you believe. Please don't cause any trouble. And the man quietly but firmly says, Jesus is Lord. Now that word Lord, that's the touchstone. Because the emperor said that he was Lord. And at that moment, the centurion steps forward takes hold of the man and off to prison, which is really a way en route to trial, to sentencing, to exile, probably death. What about his wife and family? They would now be destitute. And I think most of us would want to rationalize. If this little ceremony doesn't really mean anything, then what's the big deal? Why not just go along with it and then go off and worship with their Christian friends? What's the big deal? Well, this church had to stand and declare that. I invite you to stand. Adam Watts is going to come and read for us this morning. Revelation chapter 2, verses 8 to 11. Good morning. As Tom said, the scripture today comes from Revelation 2, and it's verses 8 to 11. To the angel of the church in Smyrna write, These are the words of him who is the first and the last, who died and came to life again. I know your afflictions and your poverty, yet you are rich. I know about the slander of those who say they are Jews and are not, but you are a synagogue of Satan. Do not be afraid of what you are about to suffer. I tell you, the devil will put some of you in prison to test you, and you will suffer persecution for 10 days. Be faithful, even to the point of death, and I will give you life as your victor's crown. Whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit has to say to the churches. The one who is victorious will not be hurt at all by the second death. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. So as Jesus looks into the heart of this church, he sees three aspects that rise to the surface. First of all, he said you suffer afflictions. That's a word that means pressure. Actually, it's a unique word for the pressure that comes from following the kingdom and the word of Jesus. It is not a word that's used for the normal pressures of everyday life that we all experience. Rather, the word means the unique pressure that comes as we follow the Lordship of Jesus. Jesus uses the same word in John chapter 16, when he says, in this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. 
Then he says that the church needs Christians with no poverty, economic hardship because of their commitment to Jesus. Greek has two words for poor. Actually, Greek has two words for just about everything, but it is two words for poor. The first word for poor is pennies. It means you're not independently wealthy, but you work for your daily wages, which describes probably most of us. And then the next word is the word tokas. That's not just daily wages. You are destitute. And that's the word that's used here. Actually, the same word is used to describe Jesus. Remember in Corinthians, I think it is, when it says Jesus was rich but became poor. He became tokas. He became destitute when he came to the world. Thirdly, says, says John, there's social discrimination. A large Jewish colony was fond of blaming Christians for all kinds of problems in Smyrna. Some of the accusations were, well, they ate flesh and drank blood, referring, of course, to the communion service. Because many people left their families when they became Christians, and so it was anti-family. They were atheists because they did not worship idols. They said they were potential arsonists because they said the earth would end in fire. So the letter to the church says, don't be afraid. You will receive the crown of life. Your faithfulness will be rewarded by Christ, who will give you the crown of life. Now, many of you would know off the top of your head, Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2, when the Apostle Paul says, do not be, what's the word? Conform to the world. When I was a young Christian growing up in Glasgow, we had great discussions about what that meant. What did it mean not to be conformed or shaped by the culture in which we live? In Smyrna, you knew exactly what that meant and looked like. It had a very visible, clear expression. But can I suggest to you this morning that part of our struggle and the pressure of our discipleship today is that in many areas of life and culture, there is no clear, floodlit path separated, as it were, by barbed wire that separates culture from Christianity. So much of our Christianity actually looks like middle-class living. And so we sing, he is Lord, he is Lord, and we really mean that as we express our commitment to him as Lord. And then in a few months, we'll go and pay our house taxes. Now, we are not required to burn a pinch of incest, which um, demonstrates our allegiance to some political leader or party. We're not asked, we're not required to make a sacrifice to a foreign god when we purchase a home. And so when we understand this background and read this letter, it is perhaps easy for us to assume that this letter has nothing to say to us in our situation of relative social cultural freedom. But it does. I want to suggest you this morning for a few minutes that you have to look a little deeper. In fact, a lot deeper. I admit that I'm getting older. And in the generation which I grew up, there were many unwritten expectations about Christian behavior. What Christians did, did not do. So let me say to you this morning, if you're around 60 or older, you can answer the following. Okay, the question is, what did, what did good Christians do about the following? Did you shop on Sundays? No. Did you play cards? No. Did you go dancing? 
Somebody said yes? <laughs> what kind of Christian were you? <laughs> Did you go to movies? No. Did you smoke? No. Did you wear makeup and earrings? By the way, this is, we're talking to women, not to men this time. Did you? Now, that was a list of stuff when it said, don't be conformed to the world. Those were the kinds of things we talked about and discussed. You might think that's old-fashioned, but that's kind of the way it was. And I'm not trying to defend these expectations as being biblical. They related more to culture and the tradition of the day. Let's understand that. But they did form some kind of imperfect identification. Today, understand this, the boundary markers are largely invisible. The changing mores of our land and culture and also a move away from a, a legalistic kind of Christianity make many, many more things more permissible in today's world. Perhaps the one rem remaining issue is sexuality. Come to that in just, in just a moment. So there's no magistrates with incense waiting to be burned. There's no Roman centurion hovering nearby to drag us off. And in the absence of political expression of faith, being a Christian then may seem easier. But commitment may in fact be harder. The issues, the fact that the issues are not clear and simple as a pinch of incense does not mean that things are easier. It may in fact mean that things are more difficult to us, for us. So defining the meaning of commitment, what it means to be a Christian, moves from something merely external, the things you don't do, to something internal. It moves from the realm of external political allegiance to a deeper internal faithfulness of heart and mind. I know it's easy to rationalize. It's only a pinch of incense. Just, just go along with it. It doesn't mean anything. The cost may not be in terms of our lives, but it may be in terms of our soul. And that may be a deeper price. Our situation may seem very different from that of Smyrna, but that actually may force us to probe more deeply. We turn issues over and we move from the external and the obvious to the internal and the more subtle. So think this through with me for a few minutes this morning. Perhaps we need to realize that the greater danger lies in what we accept and embrace rather than what we oppose. Obviously, there are things in society that we oppose, we stand against. We muster our spiritual forces in prayer, community. We may write and we may petition. With prayer and placards, we may fight our battles. We can stand against what we consider to be evil. Edmund Burke says, all it takes for evil to flourish is for good men to do nothing. There are visible things that we oppose, but in the meantime, we may actually fail to see what we have quietly been seduced by that we embrace, such as the subtle scent of materialism. We oppose pornography, but we silently embrace and even applaud greed, which the Bible calls idolatry. Tony Campolo, 
says American Christians have been lulled into an attractive, comfortable, emotionally gratifying form of slavery. He says it's an affluent, middle-class lifestyle. Or Art Gish says we buy what we don't want to impress people that we don't like. We have taken on the ways and the strategies of the world in terms of political power, lobbying, in order to oppose and fight the evils of the world, which can only be met with prayer. So think about it. The things that we silently accept and embrace without question or discussion may at times be a greater challenge to the Lordship of Christ in our lives than the things we visibly oppose or used to. When I was a young Christian, it was going to movies and dancing and playing cards. Some of the things that we accept and embrace without thinking can silently suck the life out of us if we are not careful. Or again, the greater temptation comes from our strengths rather than our weaknesses. I think we often assume without thinking that we will minister and move ahead from the strengths that God gave us that we identify. That may well be the case in many times. God certainly can use our strengths and our gifts. The danger is that we can easily become overconfident when we assume that we have strength and ability, and so we rely on expertise rather than the strength and humility to the Holy Spirit. There's a danger in life that is called the weakness of an unguarded strength. You got that phrase? The weakness of an unguarded strength. Some years ago, there was a well-known pastor, author, conference speaker. Harriet and I had gone to hear him sometimes. We had read his books. And some years, he had stated that the one area in his life in which he knew he would never fail would be his marriage. That would always be strong. One day as he was traveling, he was dining alone. And so also in the dining room was another attractive business lady dining alone. So they ate together. And then they shared coffee together in one of the rooms. And by the end of the evening, this intimate pledge that he had made to his wife had been broken. That is the weakness of an unguarded strength. Or let me give you that picture in a different way, one that I know personally. Let me take your mind, please, on a short trip to the lovely city of Edinburgh. And high above Princess Street is Edinburgh Castle. There it is. Been there since about the 10 hundreds, I think. It's a it's like a sentinel that stands guard over the city. And Edinburgh Castle has a series of seven gates. And as you went from one gate into the next gate into the next gate, the space that you're in becomes narrower and narrower. And the point was that if one gate fell to the enemy, by the way, the enemy is always the English. <laughs> if one gate fell to the enemy, you could pull back and you could retreat, and then you held the next gate. And the space in which the enemy had to fight became narrower and tighter and tighter and tighter, making it all the more difficult to fight and much easier to defend. 
And that's how Edinburgh Castle was defended and kept its honor in saying, the city never fell through its gates. That was his boast. I think no more than four gates had ever fallen. But twice, twice, the castle was captured. You see, how could that be? Well, the side that looks down to, if you know the city, Princess Street, and so on down to the city of, down to the rest of Edinburgh, they said was too steep to be climbed. No one would ever be able to get up there. And so guards were never set at that side of the castle. And on two occasions, they found a young man from the castle who was coming down, possibly to see his girlfriend. And so let's just say they persuaded him to talk how he'd got down. And twice the castle was climbed and taken. That is the weakness of an unguarded strength. Do you understand it describes some dimension of our lives or of a church like Central Baptist where we say this is where we're strong. This is where we will never fall. We will never collapse in this area and our confidence can become our downfall and our collapse. The invisible and perhaps the greater temptation always comes from our strengths not our weaknesses. Where we think we've got it together, all figured out, we will never fail. That's where we have to set a sentry. And once again, the greater challenge lies in developing our deep inner life rather than our public image. You see, in the marketplace at Smyrna, all they wanted was good public image. They wanted things to look good on the outside. No fuss. But the Christians who came forward knew that there was more on the altar than good public image. They were not prepared to prostitute their commitment to Christ on the altar of rationalization. You see, our lives have got three dimensions. First of all, there's our public life. That's where we live and work. We interact with people, we have community, we go to social events. This is where we want to look good and smell good and wear nice clothes. And we will spend a lot of time and a lot of money in our culture working on that. We call this image. And if that's all someone has, we sometimes call them superficial. Then beneath that, there is what we call our private life. This is where we're away from the public eye, with family and with close friends. It's where we can let our guard down and really become more of the people that we really are. But then there's a third level, the most important, and not everyone gets there. We will call it our deep inner life. This is where we live before ourselves. This is where we grow and develop our conscience. This is the realm of the soul and the spirit. This is who we really are when no one is looking. This is where we make commitments and decisions whether we know it or not. This is a level which is vital for each one of us because it's often like some dark basement we may not have visited for a long time. This is where what I call our personhood resides. 
And the greater challenge for each of us is to discover and mature who we really are at this deep inner level. To invest in the discovery and the nurture of this deep inner person. And if we do not find ourselves and feed ourselves at this deep inner level, we will have no alternative but to be superficial people. We will allow the pressure of what John Newhouse calls the public square to shape who we are and to dictate how we live. It's what Paul means when he says, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. When we're asked to go with the flow, to, to go along with the crowd and burn a little piece of incense, we simply do that because everyone else is doing that. Imagine the man I told you about earlier as he moves forward to the table where the incense is laid out. Imagine he's telling him, you're next, come. He quietly but firmly says, no. Do you think he thought about that at the last minute? No. Did he sign in that response when he got to the front of the line just to make things difficult? No. He had been thinking about that for a long time in the deep inner part of his being. That's where the decision was made. He not only thought about the decision, he thought about the consequences. He thought about what would happen to him, what would happen to his family. In the words of Jesus, he'd counted the, the cost of taking up his cross and following Jesus. This was the decision of a deep man who'd been alone with himself. And in his deep aloneness, he'd thought about what it really, really means to say Jesus is Lord. Earlier I mentioned that I sense in our culture today one of the last areas of visible Christian discipleship in our culture is sexuality. And to all of us, not just young adults, to all of us, we need to decide about sexual commitment and integrity in the deep inner place in our lives before we get there. And if you don't decide about it there, our culture will simply sweep you along and you'll go with the flow. You need to decide about the spiritual commitment of your partner, about holy sexuality. That sounds like an oxymoron, but it's not. Holy sexuality. Before you get into a relationship, and not after when, when you're in the emotional depth of a relationship, because then it may be too late to decide. I have a sense that we are only willing to pay the price for something if we have a deep reason in the basement of our being, deep within our souls. But without that deep well within us, we only have public image. We'll look good on the outside, but that's all we have. But if we will nurture a deep inner life, if we will develop a deep place within us, where we confess that Jesus is Lord. Our public life will then be a vital living expression of who we are in private and who we are in the deep places within us. And there may be costs for living out that kind of depth. Remember, it happened in Smyrna through physical suffering, pressure. Secondly, through economic hardship. And thirdly, through social discrimination. We may, pay the faith, we may pay the price for our faith in different ways. 
perhaps in terms of what our culture calls happiness, or money, or a relationship, or fame, or the applause of people. We will have to choose who truly is Lord in the deep places of our hearts. There is also a different and a greater cost when we come to Caesar and when we burn the incense of our culture we may find that we become powerless in terms of the life of the Spirit. We may find that our prayers become impotent. You see, the applause of our culture is not the same as the applause of our God. Where do we learn to live from this depth? Well, it starts in the verse we've shared, don't be conformed to the world, but be transformed. The Greek word is metamorphosis undergo metaphorosis, change, transformation by the renewing of your mind. We learn in the disciplines of prayer, of study, of meditation. This is the develop and the nurture of a Christian mind. My maxim as a teaching pastor for many, many years was simply to nurture thinking Christians, who think Christianly. Thinking Christians who think Christianly. And remember Jesus promises a crown to those who overcome, to those who are faithful. Let me suggest to you this morning as we close that there is a crown of victory each time, each time we recognize the smell of incense of our culture, when we smell its seductive aroma, perhaps in some seemingly innocent event no big deal. Perhaps no one will ever care. Perhaps no one will ever know. But when with discernment and courage we quietly and firmly say, no, and we refuse to bow our knee, that is a moment of inner victory for us. That is a moment of inner conquest which Christ rewards. I suggest to you at that moment, we receive from our Lord a crown of victory. And we will also receive the encouragement which will enable us to go on to make strong and stronger decisions. You see, each major decision of faith will be made on the stepping stones of small, unseen victories. Do you understand that in your lives? Each major decision of faith will be made on the stepping stones of small, unseen victories. So I invite you to stand and worship team to come. So remember our challenge this morning. The greater danger lies in what we accept and embrace rather than what we oppose. The greater temptation comes from our strengths rather than our weaknesses. The greater challenge lies in developing our inner life rather than our public image. To finish the story, that author and pastor, conference speaker, and his wife were able through the great, deep forgiveness of God to put their marriage back together again. He was the one that writes the phrase, the weakness of an unguarded strength. So this morning, let me just ask you as we close,
is there an area, an issue in your life in which you've decided to make a deep, deep inner commitment? For you, Jesus truly is Lord, no matter what. And when you make that decision, that determination, you may not hear them, but the angels of heaven applaud. That's the moment of quiet, deep victory in your life. Every small decision that we make does not go unnoticed in the arena of heaven because in that moment we have overcome we have chosen well and all of heaven applauds us because in that moment we say and we walk in the truth that Jesus Christ is Lord may that be for you this coming week thank you for being here good morning and God bless you We want to take a moment to thank you for listening, and we invite you to join us on Sunday mornings in person or online. For more information about who we are and what's happening at the church, visit us online at centralbaptistchurch.ca. And it would mean so much to us if you took a moment to rate and review the podcast. It's one of the best ways you can help us spread the truth of the gospel online. Thanks for listening to the Central Baptist Church Victoria podcast.